This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You lost all constitutional rights the moment you walked through that door. When the judge sat down there, I said, shoot for 10 years at the Idaho State Penitentiary. You walked in that door, you was a number. And the inmate understood that. If you're out there and live in the past, you're going to be in here just lay down and do it. Those inmates that were here in the institution during the next execution, it had an impression on them that maybe it was still with them to some extent. Maybe they don't think about it anymore, but it, it had a, an impression on them, I'm sure. They wouldn't let me out until we get back to the stuff. <laughs> Seven months later, I get it back to them. That was one of, the, one of the problems we ran into. You had five or six guys that were sitting in a place, smoking a joke and a drinking coffee. Pretty quick, they'd hatched a plan in there to... to get under your skin some way or, or try to figure a way out. Welcome everybody to another episode of Behind Gray Walls, a podcast about the old Idaho State Penitentiary and all the men and women who worked and resided here. My name's Anthony. I'm chatting with Sky. Hello. Oh my gosh, Sky, you have the coolest Christmas sweater on I right sure now. I <laughs> sure do. This is my share Christmas sweater and it has share with red hair and a Santa hat and it says believe on it. Um, so yes, this is, I don't ever wear it very often because I try to look nice when I go to like Christmas parties and stuff. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? It's 20 degrees. It's two days before Christmas. We're wearing share today. So yes, thank you very much. Sky famously a share fiend, a share Listen, uh, the day she dies is going to be a rough day for me. Oh, man. And uh, yeah, so this is my very special Christmas sweater. But um, how are you feeling about Christmas? Are you get all your presents bought? And I, you know what? I think truck? so. Yeah, I haven't wrapped them, mm. and I am notoriously just all year long just buy presents and oh, just kind of hide them. And okay. sometimes I oh, no. don't find them. Oh <laughs> so no! I I'm hoping I haven't. Has Becky ever stumbled upon a present that you hid that you forgot about or like before Christmas? Not as far as I know, but she's not like me. Like Mm. I, she has to hide them from me because I just have to know, (laughs) you know, I was always a little brother. She loves the surprise and everything. And I, I don't, I'm always like rifling through the presents. So do you know what you're getting this year? I'm feeling. Oh my. Yeah, no, no, I didn't. I didn't look. I didn't look. But so you every day you wake up and you shake it and you're like, I bet it's this. And everyone yeah. is like, Anthony, just open it. Just open. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, it's another puzzle. Yay. <laughs> Anthony was just telling me how much he and Becky are loving doing puzzles, but they're fighting over doing them together. And yeah, yeah. I just need to be there by myself to do them because. Oh. You know, then I start like looking at what she has going. And Do you then get competitive? I get competitive. Competitive puzzler? <laughs> I'm a competitive puzzler. Oh but we're my. talking, we're looking into puzzle competitions. Have you heard of these things? No. Oh my gosh. So, like right now, I think 32 minutes for a 500 piece puzzle is like, it's it's a couple oh that did gosh. it. I don't know. It's so the, yeah. you, so like, is it a big like can you walk into like a convention center and you just have yeah. like a time? Like, do they do it's they like, do it? Yeah. Is it all the same puzzle? I, I believe so. Where yeah, do they do it? It's a bunch of duos, a bunch of teams that do that. I I couldn't tell you. I, huh. I've never heard of I'm that. I'm a couple of years of training out. Oh, but, right, you know, right, right. I'll, well, I'm not, I'm not a puzzler at all, so that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> you would think I would like them, but I don't. Yeah, yeah. Are you all ready for Christmas? I think so. Right. I um, 
did most of my shopping online, uh, nice. so I don't really remember what I bought at this point. So I guess we'll find out. Nice. Um, I've just been stocking up on all my old Christmas movies. It's a Wonderful Life, yeah. Miracle on 34th Street, Christmas in Connecticut. I'm getting in the Christmas spirit with all my old movies, and uh, I'm pretty pretty excited about that. Nice. So, and then, of course, I've got Cher on, so right. Christmas uh, is complete <laughs> for me. <laughs> but uh, Oh, my gosh. And, of course, you know... This episode's coming out after Christmas. Uh, so yes, it is. So hopefully hope, everyone had a Merry Christmas. Yes, safe and fun, yes. and families are still enjoying each other. Yes, families, <laughs> both your biological and chosen. Yes. You know, yeah. how all that goes. And unfortunately, I don't think my... I didn't know we were doing this around Christmas, so my story is not particularly yeah. Christmassy. Yeah, there we'll have are to quite see a if few find yeah, Christmas next. pardons and things. Yeah, yeah. Why don't you start us off today? <laughs> All right. So I am talking about Roy and James Little. Roy Little, number 4536, and James Little, number 4619. My sources, both men's prison files, which are held at the Idaho State Archives, digitized Idaho Daily Statesman through Newsbank, Library of Congress Chronicling America, Newspapers.com, Ancestry.com, a Wikipedia article on Scandia, Kansas, and an article on the Wyoming Frontier Prison on the history of the Wyoming State I've been there. Yeah, you have. I've, done, I've even done a ghost adventure in there. Oh, my Ghost gosh. haunting, whatever those are called. That's pretty sweet. So Arthur Leroy Little was born in Scandia, Kansas, and all his prison files list him as Roy Little, so I will actually continue to call him that throughout the episode instead of Arthur Leroy. Mm. Um, yeah, so Roy's intake file listed his birthday as 1883, but his com profile lists his birthday as December 29th, 1881. His death certificate lists his birth as December 31st, 1882. So, yes, we love that. Somewhere in that range. (laughs) I mean, he was an end of December baby, so that fits in, I guess. Yeah. Oh, there we go. There we go. There's our connection. Oh, yeah, it's the worst. Uh, (laughs) It's the worst connection. (laughs) Scandia, Kansas was originally actually called New Scandinavia after Swedish immigrants arrived in the 1860s, and the name changed into Scandia in 1876, just a few years before Roy was born. He married Emma Bell Thompson on Christmas Eve, December 24th, 1903. My, my. <laughs> we said there weren't Christmas connections at all. We uh, lied. Yeah. Right at the beginning. <laughs> so I'm not sure when he moved to Idaho, but uh, he and Emma, they had their first daughter, Emma, in August the following year, followed by James Arthur Little on January 29th, 1906 in Boise. They had their last child together, Frederick Little, in July 1909. Roy began having problems, and in February 1912, Emma filed for divorce from Roy, alleging a failure to provide. Quote, she states that the defendant is a person of intemperate habits, and such money as he earns from time to time is squandered by spending same for intoxicating drinks, end quote. So he's an alcoholic and that causes issues so the divorce was granted in march 1912 and emma was granted 25 dollars a month as alimony to take care of the children Mm. so roy owed 25 dollars every month which is quite a bit of money yeah what what year is that 1912 oh yeah that's a lot yeah 1913 is when most of the inflation calculators come about so that's probably a few hundred yeah probably Roy left Idaho and his family and moved to Wyoming. 
He would later list himself as a widow in his first intake form, most likely due to this divorce and tragic blow to his character Ooh, and his self-esteem. My, my. So Emma actually married the following year, February 4th, 1913. She remarried this man named Thomas Cooper, who was a fruit packer. And the couple had their first child, Ellen, in 1914. Arnaud in 1917, Charles in 1918, Vivian in 1921, Thomas in 1924, and their last son, Kenneth, in Oregon in 1926. So that's five? Yeah. Oof. Plus the three that she had yeah. with Roy. Roy's file points out information that he was incarcerated at the State Reformatory at Anamosa, Iowa, in June 1927. So we're moving on okay. to the 1920s under the name Bailey Morse. I found that Bailey Morse had served time in the Iowa Reformatory in May 1927 after he was arrested for burning down a barn at a farm and stealing several hogs. Quote, several head of horses, cows, and hogs, and some feed were burned in the barns, end quote. As Bailey Morse, he was charged with insanity and sentenced to the state reformatory at Anamosa, Iowa, from Ringgold County to serve, quote, until sane, end quote. <laughs> Okay. In a letter from C.H. Ireland from April 11th, 1933, it notes the connection between the old pens number 4535 Roy Little, quote, supposed to be our number 12079, end quote, at the Iowa Reformatory. But it turns out that, quote, the fingerprint classification on those two subjects were identical, but owing to the above, it would be impossible for them to be the same party, end quote. And the above, he is actually alluding to the fact that Bailey Morse died at the reformatory on November 18th, 1927, and was buried in the reformatory cemetery. So this is the first time that I've actually come across two individuals having identical fingerprints. I thought that was not, I thought that's why we do fingerprints. I know. Because that's impossible. I was like, what? What, like digging through these newspapers and finding these these weird connections and all of his prison files all said that he was in this Iowa reformatory. So it's not uh, until this letter comes in late into his incarceration in Idaho that they find out, oh no, that record is wrong. But it's on file for both of these two individuals. Okay, that's yeah. wild. So if Roy is not this dead bailey moss which what if what if the biggest conspiracy theory of all is that he faked his death and escapes right i love that that's crazy <laughs> that would be wild and it wouldn't be out of the question it's true. based on this it's, guy's life oh my okay because <laughs> he found himself in some trouble my, soon my. after he became number 4008 in the wyoming state penitentiary on june 27th 1928 for forgery he committed the forgery in Laramie County and was sentenced to from two to three years. And it appears that not many Wyoming newspapers are digitized after 1923, so I couldn't find any extra details about the crime. But the Wyoming State Penitentiary is now a historic site that you can and should visit. And as Sky said, they do host paranormal investigations. Very cool. It's it's a really interesting prison. It's not quite like the the prison here because mm. here, uh, you know, it functioned as a prison for so long that it once it closed down as a prison, it remained a prison. But actually, Wyoming, it did actually close down. Like after it closed, the university actually used it 
uh, as like a place that the like agricultural program for the university because Laramie is both home of the university and mm-hmm. the prison and so uh, the if you go in there now it's all made up really nicely it looks very different than ours does but that's because uh, they they had to basically reform it from being an old like uh, cattle and livestock area like barn basically so it's really really well done now and again just very different than ours and I think that's what's so fun is to go around these prisons around the country and see what was different their women's ward was literally like two cells Wow, Um, it's so interesting so highly highly recommend if you're in Laramie passing through Laramie there isn't much else to see to be on (laughs) to be honest with you but uh but the the prison is very very cool so definitely recommend checking it out yeah yeah, fascinating mm-hmm. history. It's really cool, yeah. I I was trying to dig through it, just, just little snippets, and I found it was open for 80 years yeah. between 1901 and 1981. So mm, it was open an mm-hmm. extra, you know, eight years yeah, after yeah. the old pen And closed. do you want to hear my one, my one paranormal story that oh, I have from there? Yeah, okay. of course. So I went because I was at that point TAing for a History of Wyoming class, nice. and they offered, uh, like, we took our classes to see it. And I can't remember how I got in with the administration there, but they were like, do you guys want to come do a paranormal investigation? I was like, no, but yes. So I went, and I remember we were so... The way that the prison is set up there, you came in the front door and then off to, I think, the right is a, is the room where they would do the fingerprints and the mug shots. But the guards actually lived upstairs. So in oh, that room, wow. there's a staircase that goes up to where the guards used to stay. And one of the things they told us in this paranormal investigation, which they may hear, I don't know, they w- they said, if you feel something, like, say it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, maybe someone else is feeling the same way. And we were standing down at the bottom of this room. And so the staircase was back behind us. And I just remember this like very distinct feeling that like someone was watching us. And I just, I, I kind of just stayed quiet for a hot second. And then I was just, it kind of got quiet and I was like, I'm so sorry. I just want to say like, it feels like someone is like watching us from upstairs. And someone goes, you feel that too? And I was like, yeah, I got to get out of here actually. I hate this. <laughs> Paranormal investigations are very much not my thing. But like, I will honestly like never forget that feeling as long as i live because it was so like it was so strong oh so wild so anyway i highly recommend that's just a (laughs) a completely random rabbit hole that i was not planning on but um yeah very very cool and it's one of the it's so with us and arizona and where's the fourth one montana or minnesota is like the only montana it's montana that's right hello i have also been there also highly recommend that's a fascinating place (laughs) yeah yeah anyway sorry oh no you're good that's random rabbit hole definitely encourage everybody to go check those out and do a paranormal investigation if you're interested in it yeah there's stuff going on there they carried out executions including nine hangings and five gas chamber executions using hydrogen cyanide Ooh, yeah. 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 Um, but besides that, you know, they had similar vocations as we did here. They were making brooms, uh, T-shirts, license plates, general farm work and labor. I found Roy Little in the 1930 census listed as the inmate at mm-hmm. the prison, and it noted he had not attended school, but he could read and write. He was 47 years old and was born around 1883 in Kansas, was widowed, and his occupation was Hogman. Because <laughs> he stole them all. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that uh, widowed comment was part of his resentment towards <laughs> his ex-wife, Emma. And Roy was released from the Wyoming State Penitentiary May 26, 1930. 
And it's around this time that his son James was handed his first prison sentence north in Montana. And mm. uh, Deer Lodge. Deer Lodge. Montana State Penitentiary. And we'll get to James' story in a moment. Roy left Wyoming and made a stop in Utah where he forged a check in Box Elder before heading north to Idaho. And Roy, carrying a pocket full of forged checks, cashed his last for $14.75 in Twin Falls, Idaho. He was arrested and locked in the county jail on Halloween, October 31st, 1931. This is a holiday episode. It really is. <laughs> and now it's our favorite game, Sky. How much is $14.75 from 1931 worth in today's value? Oh, man. So it's $14. I would guess it's probably like $220. Oh, you're, you're pretty close. Just under $300. Okay. $294.71. Okay. Yeah. So I'm getting better. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, so he owed $25 alimony every oh. month. So this is, you know, like yeah. 15 bucks. Yeah. So we're talking, he's about $400, $500 yeah. that he owed in alimony every month. So that I'm assuming he has not been paying. So no. he really owes he left a lot town. of money. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So Roy pled guilty to the charge, and he was convicted of forgery and arrived at the Idaho State Penitentiary on November 10th, 1931, sentenced to from 1 to 14 years. His intake, he's Roy Little, number 4536, alias Arthur Smith, probably what he's writing on his checks, sure. which is a very good name. Because uh, <laughs> it's so hard to trace because there's so many Smiths out there. Yeah. Uh, six feet tall, age 48. He's born in Scandia, Kansas, occupation farmer, hair is gray, beard none, medium complexion. He's 154 pounds. He has a regular build. Now he lists himself as divorced. Mm -hmm. The form noted that he had bad teeth, his nose appeared broken, and he had a prominent chin. His bertion showed cut scars on his forehead and right and left cheeks, an operation scar on his right torso, and noted that his back was humped. Oh, oh. set up straight right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. The letter from the prosecuting attorney noted in a questionnaire about if he was a menace to society and a habitual criminal, and he wrote, no mistake about it. Oh. When asked what info will be helpful for the Board of Pardons and Paroles to consider when he goes before them, quote, he must be taught that laws are made to be respected and not broken, end quote. So now that we have Roy's backstory and arrival in the prison, we'll follow the trajectory of his son, James. As I noted at the top, James Arthur Little was born on January 29, 1906, in Boise, Idaho. It appears he had a difficult childhood after his father left. Most likely acting out, he was sent to the industrial school at St. Anthony around seven years old in 1913 for incorrigibility. Seven years old? Yeah. Ooh. Yeah, incorrigibility. He was sentenced to stay at the school until he turned 21 what? years old. 14, 14 years? years? Yeah. Jeez. He was paroled, though, on December 23rd, 1918, a month before his 13th birthday, <laughs> but returned the following year on December 1st, 1919. He was released on parole again on January 1st, 1921, just before his 15th birthday. The next time I could find James, he had traveled to California, where he was arrested for vagrancy by begging on February 6th, 1925. By begging? By begging, yeah. I thought you said baking, and oh. I was like, I don't know what that means, but <laughs> it's just like walking around with loaves of bread in his pocket. 
<laughs> the judgment was actually suspended five days later. Next, I found he was in, in Montana and was arrested again in January 1930 for vagrancy. In June, James broke into the Vaughn and Ragsdale store in Billings and stole six pairs of women's silk hosiery. Store clerks actually caught him in the act and, quote, were successful in holding him until police arrived, end quote. Hmm. He spent a little bit of time in jail for that. Sure. In November, he was with a man named D.C. Litzinger, as well as Emma Farmstead and Nellie Amy, who actually told authorities that she was Litzinger's wife, as they attempted to steal some chickens from the I.P. Mead family. James and the women sat in the getaway car and waited for Litzinger, but he seemed to be taking too long. So James got out of the car and approached the coop, and like his hosiery uh, attempt... Members of the Mead family actually caught Litzinger in the act, and James began fist-fighting with them to rescue his friend, but failed, and the quartet, quote, were held until officers arrived and placed them under arrest, end quote. So again, he's caught in the act and held by the people he's trying to steal from. How old is he at this point? So this is 1930. He's about 24 years old. He's old enough to know better. But clearly he's someone who has spent his life clashing against authority. That's exactly it. Yeah, yeah. Just clashing. That's Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. his whole life is Mm -hmm. like this. So James and D.C. Litzinger pled guilty and were sentenced to 1 to 14 years in the Montana State Penitentiary for second-degree assault. Mm. He was received at the prison on December 4th, 1930, and the intake records for the Montana State Pen, like many of ours, are digitized on Ancestry.com, and his intake noted that his occupation was Teamster and that he had worked in Seattle, Washington for the security construction company for three months, and he had worked in Montana for two and a half months prior to the crime for the Holney Brothers as a Teamster, so basically moving items and goods Mm. and probably Mm -hmm. livestock. Mm -hmm. He was listed as 5 feet, 8 and 1 eighth inches tall. He had light complexion, 148 pounds. His teeth were good. He was Protestant. He smoked tobacco, and he spent just a few months in there. He was actually released on July 19th, 1931. And that was at Deer Lodge? Yeah. Highly recommend visiting Deer Lodge as well. That that is even crazier like I, I remember going and I was just like, this prison and the things that happen here make the Idaho State Penitentiary look tame. Like we had very well behaved inmates compared to what happens out there. Yeah. Highly recommend. Yeah. Oh. So James moves back to Spokane, Washington. He's arrested with a partner named Joe Murray and spent 60 days in jail for a petite larceny after stealing women's hosiery in october 1931 is it just because they're worth money it has to be a lot of money yeah Yeah. apparently uh jimmy little was making such a bad name for himself that in february 1932 after he was arrested again for vagrancy and having stolen property after buying two dollar socks that were stolen from a store a plumber named James L. Little from Spokane wrote to the newspaper that he, quote, wants the world to know that he was not the man of the name arrested Saturday on a charge of stealing socks oh, no. at a downtown store, end quote. So I found that Jimmy was arrested again in March 1932, a month after this, for vagrancy charges again. And after spending some time in jail, he returned to Idaho. In April 1932, James and a partner named Louis Alberthal stopped in Lewiston, Idaho, 
On April 9th, the duo entered the Lewiston Fur Shop operated by T.E. Morris. Morris was in the basement working, which gave James and Lewis the prime moment to rob the store. They grabbed $300 worth of furs and ran out the door. So it was like two furs. Furs right. were so expensive. Authorities actually caught up to them quickly and discovered both men in the Hume Hotel with all kinds of stolen goods. So, again, any idea how much $300 is worth in 1931 in today's money? $5,000? Oh. $6,519. I'm getting closer. Cents. You Look are. Look at me. Yeah, so... Man, Ooh. that's so much money. Both men confessed to the crimes and uh, confessed to several other larcenies. And the prosecuting attorney wrote, quote, Prisoner in company with one L.E. Alberthal stole two fur scarves from the Lewiston Fur Shop in this city. They were apprehended the same day and confessed to shoplifting merchandise from stores in Spokane, Rosalia, Colfax, and Pullman, Washington, and Lewiston, Idaho. They both pleaded guilty to the charge of grand larceny, end quote. So James was sentenced to a term of from 5 to 14 years in the Idaho State Penitentiary for grand larceny. So his intake, James Little, number 4619, arrived May 2nd, 1932. Crime, grand larceny, he's 5 feet, 8, 7 inches tall. Age, 27, born in Boise, Idaho. Occupation, teamster. His hair was auburn color. He had a light complexion. He was 152 and a half pounds. He had regular build. He was single and unmarried. He had a broken nose. His teeth were good, and his chin was regular. His bertillon showed he had a scar above his lips, a scar along the left side of his jaw, operation scar near his left collarbone, operation scars on both the left and right sides of his torso, and a cut scar near his left thumb. So, wow. yeah, I'm not sure what his operations must have been. I mean, he's been in trouble since he was seven years old, so right. who knows? Yeah, those could have been stabbing wounds yeah, or something. Yeah. Uh, the prosecuting attorney noted that his criminal tendencies were, quote, inspired through inducement and environment, end quote. On May 11th, 1932, the Idaho statesman published a story, Astounded Father Meets Son Within Idaho Penitentiary. Quote, across the gap of 20 years, dim recollection of home and family affection flickered Tuesday as a father grasped the hand of the son he had last seen as a seven-year-old mm. boy. Slight emotion was shown by Roy Little, 48, as Jimmy Little, 27, sat down beside him and said, Hello, Dad. I didn't expect to see you here. There was small room for sentiment. They met in the Idaho Penitentiary, where both are prisoners. End quote. And then the write-up kind of details their crimes and criminal records and sentences. And Can you imagine, though, like coming in and being like, Oh, that's my dad. I wonder if his dad even recognized him. Mm. If he hadn't seen him since he was seven. Right. You know. Yeah. Wow. So it's probably the day his mugshot is taken. He's meeting his dad in prison after not seeing him for 20 years. Yeah. I I can't even imagine. That would be so sad and hard. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Continues on. Quote, by the prison grapevine telegraph, the elder little learned Monday that there was another of the same name in the institution, and he asked a guard if he might talk with the newcomer. It may be my son, he told Warden Ari Thomas when his appeal was made to the prison executive. A meeting was arranged. With the warden standing near the grating of the son's cell door in the receiving house, the two recognized each other. This is a strange place to meet, Jimmy, said the father. I'm sorry you're here. 
but it's not so bad. You'll get used to it. In the short personal conversation which ensued, nothing was said of their separation in 1912 or of their lives since that date. It was in Wyoming 20 years ago that the mother of Jimmy was estranged from the father. Mother was not mentioned by father or son. Previous prison records have spotted the lives of both littles. The boys served a term in Montana State Penitentiary in 1930 for assaulting a merchant who attempted to arrest him for shoplifting. He was pardoned last August. The father was in Iowa State Reformatory in 1927 on a charge of insanity. He has also served a term in Wyoming State Prison for forgery. Monday's visit will probably be the last the father and son will have until the father is released. The boy will be allowed to bid him goodbye, the warden said. Even at meals or in the course of prison work, the two will not meet, for Roy Little works outside the gray walls on the chicken farm, and Jimmy will be employed in the shirt factory. As a guard came for the father, the son took his parents' hand again, and they parted without speaking. Mm. Oh. Yeah, that's emotional. It is, yeah. I, I've been wanting to do this episode right for like years since yeah. we started the podcast yeah, yeah. i just remember being like man and this intergenerational mm-hmm. uh these issues mm-hmm. that go along with being a criminal and right. like dealing with whatever yeah. both of them dealt with when yeah. they were kids that led them to this right. mindset yeah um, i find it so interesting too that they didn't talk about like their lives mm-hmm. in the time that they didn't see each other that it just right. was like I'm sure they were like, how'd you get in here? You know, and then it was like, we're not going to talk about this period of time that I'm sure was like deeply painful for both of them. Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. That really is like emotional. And again, I think it just reminds us that like, just because they're criminals, they don't lose that sense of, I'm sure, uh, you know, familial love and affection Mm -hmm. to, to an extent. That's so interesting. Yeah. So, as noted in the write-up, father and son were separated from each other by the gray walls, and Jimmy would have spent his time learning how to manufacture shirts and uh, being one of like the 200 men in the shirt factory, mm-hmm. making a dozen shirts a day. Warden Ari Thomas wrote in the Biennial Report for 1931-1932, quote, Our output is made up of work, flannel, and low-priced, light-colored shirts. Mm-hmm. We have a maximum output of about 1,200 to 1,300 dozen shirts per week Mm. that's so much yeah of course this varies as our population increases and decreases this industry has a purpose other than to keep the men busy it plays a very important part in assisting us to judge when a man has reached the point when we feel he should be given a chance to again take his place among his fellow men the man who makes no effort to do his work nor follow the rules and regulations laid down has certainly not shown us that he has any thoughts of applying himself. Mm-hmm. And if he will not apply himself while here, it is certainly natural for us to suppose that he will not apply himself on the outside. Whereas the man who makes a success of his work and obeys the rules and regulations is, by so doing, giving us every reason to believe that he wants to make good, not only while here, but to get out as soon as he can and make good on the outside." End quote. During that two-year period, the prison made a net total of $27,971.80 from the sale of these shirts. That's a lot of money. Yeah. So that shirt factory was essential in all the construction that we have here. Roy would have been living outside the walls in the 1928 trustee dorm Mm -hmm. and raising and taking care of the chickens and bringing the eggs in, Mm -hmm. in the yard every day. 
Uh, in June 1932, about seven months into Roy's sentence, a letter arrived from the sheriff, John H. Zundell, from Brigham City, Utah. Quote, Mr. Ari Thomas, warden, I beg to acknowledge receipt of yours with reference to the above subject, Roy Little. I have shown the photo to three different parties who knew him while here, and they all identified him as the man we want. So please place a hold on him for me, and I will come when his time expires at your institution, end quote. Hmm. Warden Thomas agrees and places a hold on Roy to go to Utah to stand trial there for that forgery. Hmm. In September, Roy wrote to the parole board requesting to be on the agenda for the next meeting in November, and he noted that he had been in the prison nearly a year and, quote, the greater part of it as a trustee and my record is clear, end quote. The board agreed to include him in the next meeting. Roy Little was released November 10, 1932, serving exactly one year at the Idaho State Penitentiary. He was sent to the sheriff of Brigham City, Utah, where he was tried for forgery and sent to the Utah State Penitentiary for an indeterminate sentence as number 5919. Mm. In June 1932, James's mother, Mrs. Emma Cooper, wrote from Colton, California to, the, to Warden Ari Thomas, and she said that she had finally been informed about James's incarceration and asked how he was doing. Quote, it is awful hard for me to think of him being there, but I haven't seen him for seven years. Mm. Is he in good health? Now, please tell me everything. I can't be hurt any worse than I am. Mm. Can I send him anything like fruit candy, tobacco, or anything like that? I'd like him to know that he is still my boy. Maybe he will come home and, ugh. That is, stop. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Maybe he will come home and be a man when he serves his time. Mm. Thank you for any information you give me, and I am yours truly, Miss Emma Cooper. Ugh. And I'm so that's so frustrating for her, too, to know that her son followed in his father's footsteps. Ex yeah. And just, like, the frustration and sadness and, like, probably regret that mm -hmm. she had. Yeah. Ugh. And I think. Oh, man. And I'll... again, just how much she still loves him, you know, mm -hmm. like. This is still <sighs> what we're, heartbreaking. we do with this every single yeah, day. There's so many it's fathers true. and sons yeah. and different generations of yeah. people currently incarcerated right. and like with records. And, you know, it's like getting out of that orbit. Yeah. That. And that, that, you know, parents, so many parents just love their mm -hmm. kids, you know, regardless yeah. of what happened and, and like know their true nature. And like that's. Like the human love, the 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 nature of of human love, I think yeah. is uh, is so powerful that like we're like tearing up over this letter of her just being like, <laughs> I haven't seen him boy. in seven like, years. Oh. Can I just send him candy? Like, can I just let him know mm -hmm. that like I still love him and yeah. care about him? Ugh. Yeah, Warden Thomas responds June 24th, basically detailing all of his information about when he arrived and said he was getting along nicely. He's in good health, quote, but we do not permit inmates to receive packages, but you may send him a few dollars, which will be placed mm. to his credit, and then he can order tobacco, fruit, etc. on our regular order days, end mm -hmm. quote. So, you know, I couldn't find any record that she did, but sure. most likely I, she I, did. Yeah. On March 10th, 1933, James wrote to the pardon board requesting to appear before the board that spring. He also noted items about himself. Quote, first, I am a young man who has sense enough to realize the grave mistake I have made and to realize and emphatically understand that these mistakes must be corrected. I have tried hard during the past year that I have been in this institution to correct those mistakes. First, within myself, so that they will never be committed against the public and society again. 
Also, since coming here, I have stopped for the first time to analyze myself and find the thing for which I am best fitted to fill in an honest endeavor to live right. So I ask to again be given a chance to go out into the world a free man and to face my fellow man with a better understanding and more useful philosophy of life, knowing that these things can be obtained and maintained only by hard work and perseverance, end quote. This was probably a pretty convincing letter, and so they brought him before the board, and he was pardoned in May, mm. on May 2nd, 1933. Roy, going back to his father, served his time in the Utah State Penitentiary in Salt Lake, and I found several mentions in which he was appearing before the board for uh, release during the spring and fall board of pardons, and I couldn't find an official reprieve date. Regardless, in 1934, he was living in Salt Lake City, Utah, and on March 27, 1934, at the age of 51, Roy Little died. In a write-up in the Idaho Statesman, it noted that he was survived by his wife, quote, Miss Emma Little, one daughter, Miss Melva L. Wisely, and two sons, James and Fred Little of Colton, California, hmm. end quote. So we know that James probably went to California around this time. Hmm. The informant on his death certificate was the clerk of the Utah State Prison. Hmm. The death occurred around 3.20 p.m., and the principal cause of death was listed as apoplexy with mm. underlying issues of hypertension, so mm. probably like heart attack. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. His body was shipped to Boise, actually, for a funeral, and he is actually buried in the Morris Hill Cemetery. Mm. James probably never saw him again after his mm. meeting when he first arrived here and at the Old That's crazy. Right. Uh, James... Little's criminal career continued on right up until his death in 1954. He traveled to California, where he was busted in January 1935 for petty theft and spent 90 days in the Oakland County Jail and 90 days on probation under the name of Fred Baker. He then moved on to Sacramento, California, where he was arrested on April 12, 1935 for vagrancy and loitering and sentenced to six months in the county jail. He served 30 days. He moved on to Winnemucca, Nevada, and early in the morning on June 16, 1935, James assaulted a man named Russell Davis of Battle Mountain and stole $80 from him. James was arrested soon after and pled not guilty, but a jury found him guilty of assault with intent to commit robbery, and he was incarcerated in the Nevada State Penitentiary September 26, 1935, with a sentence of from 1 to 14 years. Mm. He was pardoned three years later on May 4th, 1938. In October 1939, he was arrested for petite theft in South Stockton, California, and spent 30 days in jail. He returned to Nevada State Penitentiary as a parole violator. I couldn't find when he was released again, but the next things I could find through 1946 and 1947, I found James getting busted for being drunk and being fined and given short jail terms in Kingman and Phoenix, Arizona, San Bernardino and Santa Ana, California, and Ontario, Oregon. So those three states, he's just in and out of jail cells. In late 1947, he was arrested as a suspect in a burglary in Los Angeles, California, and given 30 days in jail and paroled. In 1950, James was 44 years old and still at it. He was living in San Pedro, California, and crossed over to Reno, Nevada, where he broke a window in a Hasco's store at around 10 p.m. He stole three flat irons from a display case and loaded them into his car 
and was returning to grab more items when a 19-year-old Julio Herrera spotted him in the act and jumped him. Just some 19-year-old kid hears this guy breaking into the store and jumps him. Quote, Little had put the irons in his parked car and was returning for more loot when the Reno young man collared him, according to the report. Herrera called the police from the store and held the alleged burglar until officers took him into custody, end quote. Wow, good for that guy. So that's like the third time that he's busted in the act and like beaten by the people who Man, were... that's... <laughs> <sighs> yeah. So James pled guilty and was sentenced to 1 to 15 years back in the Nevada State Penitentiary for burglary in the first degree. He served three years and was released in 1953. Traveled to Pendleton, Oregon, where he committed another petit larceny and given 90 days in jail. As soon as he got out, he robbed a store in Portland, Oregon in March and was sentenced to one year in jail. In February 1954, he traveled to Seattle, where he committed another larceny and was locked up yet again. A month later, 48-year-old James Little died in Tacoma, Washington on March 22, 1954. And he is buried in the Mountain View Memorial Park Cemetery. The only note I could find was that he had died in the local hospital. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if any listeners have access to Washington death records and death certificates, I would love to know, Mm -hmm. you know, what what was it? Mm -hmm. Um, Just based on how young his father was when he died of of kind of a heart Mm -hmm. attack, I can guess it's probably along those lines. yeah. Yeah. Some sort of illness or something. Yeah. Like some of these records, there's actually a record from late 1968. This woman named Mrs. Emma Knowles wrote a letter to the Idaho State Penitentiary asking for information on Arthur Leroy Little, quote, also known sometimes as Roy. I'm working on my genealogy and would so appreciate any help you could give me. Please help me. I am so interested. He was my grandfather, and I'm sure Mm. I would have loved him very much, Mm. end quote. And so uh, the warden, his name was Virgil Carey at that time, responded with all of Roy's background and his record of incarceration, his height and weight, and also noted that Roy had Bright's disease. Oh. Yeah, so it was like this weird letter from 30 plus years later uh-huh. that they mentioned this and it's and what is nowhere Bright's else. disease that's this painful kidney disease Oof. yeah so Yikes. you know it kind of maybe that shed some light mm. on maybe he had some some mm-hmm. other underlying things that mm-hmm. kept him from being able to hold down a job on top mm. of his right. you know alcoholism and yeah. just criminal mindset but wow yeah. Huh. I, uh, Interesting that's how a, similar their trajectories are. It's sad. so heartbreaking. Yeah, it's yeah. sad. It's, man, there, there are so many programs offered in prisons today, like trying to correct mm-hmm. this line of, of thinking. Yeah. And um, I, I recently sat down with a, with a fellow who mm-hmm. served here in the late 60s named Charles Sharp, mm-hmm. and he talked about this program that he entered in 1994 at the Idaho Department of Corrections, and it changed his life, and he's been he's been out of prison, mm-hmm. and he's changed his whole experience ever mm-hmm. since. So, hmm. um, yeah, here's a, a little clip from Charles talking about kind of the criminal mindset, criminal thinking. Why is that something that people have to constantly battle? And well, it, it, first of all, uh, there has to be some kind of trauma in your life that yeah. causes you to withdraw within yourself and become selfish and self-centered. Yeah. It may be growing up in an alcoholic family, mm-hmm. maybe losing a parent or 
brother, sister, something Some traumatic trauma. happened in your life when you were real young mm-hmm. that set you on that path of being selfish and self-centered. Yeah. Once you're on that path, then you develop a whole system of distorted thinking, mm-hmm. which allows you to rationalize what you do. One of the main premises behind thinking errors is the human brain consists of the subconscious, the conscious, and the creative subconscious, Mm -hmm. which governs everything. Your creative subconscious motivates you to do things for survival. So however you see survival, whatever you see as a need for survival, becomes a driving factor. And once you commit a criminal act, whatever it may be, and you get away with it, and it meets that need, mm-hmm. now, well, I did this last time, and it worked. So I'm going to do it again, because none of this stuff that my parents are doing is working. So you begin to develop this whole way of thinking. Yeah. And pretty soon, it's not about you become the most important thing in the world because nobody else thinks you're important. Right. So every guy I have ever known who was engaged in criminal thinking did it because uh, their self-esteem did not exist. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't there. So if there's nothing that positive that Mm -hmm. helps you to value yourself and others, then you're going to develop things. You're going to gravitate towards things which make you feel good. Be right, have power and control, look good and feel good. Those are the same motivators that anybody has, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but in a normal environment with normal parents, you learn to fulfill those needs in a positive way. In a family that's dysfunctional, in a culture that's dysfunctional, then you fulfill those needs however you can. Mm -hmm. And usually it's wrong. Wow, that's so fascinating. That There's such an interesting, I don't want to say lesson to be learned, because I don't think it's necessarily a lesson, but just like a reminder of how easily one can get caught up in Mm -hmm. these negative cycles and how you can have a family who just like loves you deeply but it really is up to the person to change that behavior um but i i still think it is so admirable that their family like Mm -hmm. even this granddaughter who wrote in and just said like i just want to know more about him yeah i don't know i think i like love love you know like that that family you know, and, and whether it's chosen or whether it's your biological family, like how important that love is, even mm-hmm. if it doesn't stop that person from yeah. doing what they do. But yeah, that's, that's a, that was a really interesting story yeah. and, and such an interesting little tidbit there at the end of the criminal mindset. And, and I think we can see in, in both of those cases that like they literally didn't know anything else. They didn't mm. know anything else to do. Yeah. Uh, I think we can see that, especially in James, that he just like kept doing it. He didn't know how not to almost. Right. Yeah. It's interesting and sad. Yeah. And if you have loved ones who are 
you know, incarcerated and it's around this holiday season mm. that, you know, life is tough mm-hmm. and, you know, and just encourage everybody to throw them a line, yeah. you know, go through JPay, send them a letter mm-hmm. something like it's, it's up to the individual mm-hmm. to change their way of thinking mm-hmm. and they have to want to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, having family or someone on the outside that, mm-hmm. that loves and cares for them, mm-hmm. like that can sometimes be the nudge that mm-hmm. propels them into joining these programs and actually following through and changing themselves. So, yeah. you know, I just encourage everybody to yeah. Yeah, send them a little no. Yeah. What do you have for us So, today, today I am talking about number 9050, Elda Lee Lennon. So, sources for this today, her inmate file, newspapers.com records, ancestry.com records, an article titled Still a House of Compassion by Ed Langlois from the CatholicSentinel.org, a thesis from Portland State University titled Villa St. Rose Group Home Study by William Finkel, Robert Hooper, Barry Friedman, Donna Jacobs, and Julia Peterson, which I accessed at pdx.edu. And then uh, some Wikipedia articles, Villa St. Rose, Korean War, and Habamai Islands. So Elda Lee Lennon was born Elda Lee Erickson in Tacoma, Washington, to Alda and Helena Hull Erickson, September 27, 1929. She was the middle child of three kids. She had an older sister, Beverly Jean, and a younger brother, Joseph. The family moved to Portland, Oregon before she turned five, and that is where she was raised. She preferred to go by her middle name, Lee, over her first name, Elda, so we will call her Lee from now on. It seems that her youth may have been a little difficult in regards to the relationship with her family. On her intake, it says, quote, Her brother was reared by her maternal grandparents, she states. Lee says her sister was spoiled by the paternal grandparents. She stated she felt she was rejected by her father, not wanted, that he didn't really like her. She felt her mother loved her and that her maternal grandmother loved her. She reports her father gave her more beatings than he did her sister. She reports that the sister lied on her to get into the father's good graces. She claims, however, that she has outgrown ill feelings in that regard towards sister, thinks that what the sister did was probably natural. She states that mother stuck up for her with the father and indicates she was very close to her mother, end quote. Mm. Several reports in her inmate file state that her parents may have had difficulty raising or controlling their kids, and Lee's behavior seemed to reflect their quote-unquote lax discipline. When she was seven, according to her maternal grandmother, her family, quote, found it necessary to consult the psychiatrist. He pronounced her as a retarded child with the mentality of a three-year-old, end quote. And please note, that's not my language. Yeah. Uh, that was most often used, you know, back in these days to mm-hmm. indicate some sort of mental deficiency. By around age 13, she began stealing from her parents. And by her mid-teenage years, she was skipping school and running away from home quite frequently. Quote, Lee says she ran away from school at the age of 15 because she didn't like school, that she went with several girlfriends like herself, that they went to a show that when they were caught, her father was instrument in having her sent to the St. Rose Industrial School, end quote. Mm. And Lee herself reported that during seventh grade, quote, she didn't study, couldn't concentrate on her schoolwork, end quote, and she repeated two grades during elementary school twice, quote, mostly because of having eye trouble, says she saw double, end quote. So she may have had some sort of learning disability, yeah. um, dyslexia or That's something like that. Like, yeah. 
In May 1945, she was sent to the St. Rose Industrial School in Portland as a, quote, sex delinquent, leaving home without consent of parents, end quote, and truancy. Wow. No, there's no description of what sex delinquent means. It could mean homosexual activity. It could mean sexual activity at a young age. Mm-hmm. Um, it could mean something else entirely. I, I think it's fair that there's no description. You know, she is a minor. So yeah. the St. Rose Industrial School is also known as the Villa St. Rose. It was founded in 1902 by the Catholic Order of the Good Shepherd. Originally, there were four different schools organized at the villa, grade, high school, vocational school, and commercial school. These programs changed, quote, from much work in character building in a custodial setting to a treatment-oriented focus in a therapeutic environment, end huh. quote. So by the time Lee entered, its sole purpose was, quote, to rehabilitate adolescent girls with social adjustment problems, end quote, between the ages of 12 and 21. One former student, Kathy Castleton, said of the school, quote, it wasn't for bad girls. It was for good girls from bad homes, end quote. So which I love that description uh, because I I think there, especially in the 50s when when Lee is there, that there is sort of this idea that these are bad people. But Mm -hmm. I don't think they're bad people. They're just kids who who got, you know is stuck in bad habits or stuck in right. relationships with other people that led them to do this. Yeah, dealing um, with trauma. Yeah, I, and, and so I, I love that that she said that. Mm-hmm. So the uh, Villa St. Rose closed down as a school sometime after 1988, and it was placed on the National Register for Historic Places in 2000, and it now serves as low-income housing for senior citizens and families. Wow. So that's really cool. That's cool. So it's not surprising that even while at St. Rose, Lee struggled with school. Quote, Elda presents the personality behavior problems, was a classroom problem, creating disturbance, and it was only with a great deal of personal assistance on the part of her teacher that she completed her eighth grade work, end quote. Given her previous comments about the challenges she had in school, I think it's quite plausible that she mm-hmm. suffered from sort of learning disability, but so little about those disabilities were known back then, and of I... course we can't diagnose anything from the future, but I think it's quite plausible. Um, yeah, and I think that the the words of that former resident, Kathy Castleton, ring true for Lee. She wasn't a bad kid, just prone to some bad habits. Mm-hmm. From the school reports, quote, she is fundamentally fair-minded and conscientious, but is mentally unequal to moral discrimination. Probably she will not be willfully dishonest, but she will resort to subterfuge to avoid punishment. <laughs> is likable and gets along well with others. Delights in stories of adventure, history and movies, and daydreams a lot, which is just me. <laughs> Has little understanding of children and does not like to cook or sew, though household chores are acceptable. Likes people and works best in a group. Has periods of discontent, but is usually happy. Is lively and responsive among her friends, end quote. After about a year of being there, her parents asked that she be allowed to return home, which she did in June 1946. She began ninth grade at the Girls Polytechnical School in Portland, but quit after one semester when she was 17 years old. And perhaps part of the reason for this is that because in November 1946, Lee's parents gave their consent for her to marry a 19-year-old man named James Carruthers. Wow. The couple was married on November 23rd, 1946 in Portland. And how old is she? She is 17. 17. So, yeah, it's not, thankfully, it's not a huge gap. um, And she is a little bit older, but she is still a minor, Mm -hmm. though he's only 19. And this is 46. The war is over, but uh, I think having seen lots and lots and lots of old movies it seems like it was very common for people to get married very quickly especially if either of them were in armed forces in any way and so because james was in the navy lee lived with her parents and the couple saw each other mostly on the weekends their marriage was annulled after about 11 months lee claiming that he was the one who asked for it and she didn't know why he'd asked for it quote since she really was not at fault and he was for stepping out on her end quote 
when their marriage was annulled, however, she was pregnant. And her daughter was born on January 27th, 1948, and they named her Christine. Oh, jeez. She tried to take care of Christina on her own, but she was so young and she couldn't find a job. So she, quote, couldn't see any way to support the child, end quote, and decided to give her up for adoption. Mm. In the summer of 1949, Christine was adopted by a couple named Alvard and Nelma Moberg. And as far as I can tell, Lee never saw her again. Quote, she thought it was better that way and less disruptive to the child, end quote. Wow. Yeah, which is such a brave thing to do, I think. Yeah. uh, To give up a child of yours is uh it seems so so difficult especially after you started raising it and trying Mm -hmm. to take care of it but it takes also i think a level of maturity to admit like i can't take care of her the way that she should be taken care of so um i think that's really admirable and is she telling authorities this when she's arriving um i think yeah they do mention it in her records that's how we know of it okay um and i think that the authorities then went and sort of double checked as to Mm -hmm. who this child was adopted out to and Mm -hmm. things like that Soon after giving her daughter up for adoption, Lee married Eugene Mora, about 10 years her senior in Vancouver, Washington. Eugene was a farm laborer from Texas and had divorced his first wife only two weeks before he married Lee on September 11th, 1948. She must have had a thing for sailors because he was also in the Navy. And again, because of this, the couple didn't really spend much time together. Who was it in the 40s? <laughs> right? I mean, those... Those uniforms, again, if they are anything like they are in the movies, they are, men look very good in them. Yeah, that's the only thing informing me are movies. And it's like, that's that's part of the whole story. Yeah. It's like sailors are coming back to town. Yeah, like, exactly. And it's, it. ooh, it's, and you just get married after yeah. two weeks for some reason. It makes no sense. But according to Lee, Eugene, quote, took the attitude, it seemed to her, that he was her lord and master. And he was very jealous of her, too didn't seem to think that she had a mind of her own, end quote. He wanted her to have his children, but she admitted she didn't want to have any with him. After living together for about two months, they separated and eventually divorced in 1951. Wow. So she's been married and divorced twice Mm -hmm. before she's 25 years old? Uh, Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Wow. Jeez. And she's had a baby that she's given up for adoption. Like, this has not been an easy life for her. Man. On September 4th, 1949, while I think Lee was living with her parents, Lee's mother, Helena, died from uremia or complications of renal failure after living at the Portland Sanitarium for about 10 months. And her mother was just 41 years old at the time of her death. Jeez, what's... Uremia is uh, like complications from renal failure. So kidneys, your kidneys are shutting down. Oh, jeez. Yeah, which sounds horrible and painful. Uh, In January 1952, under the name Lee Carruthers, which is her first married name, Lee was arrested and held as a material witness for an investigation of an auto theft in Portland. I think she was actually released for serving as a witness in the investigation. At some point in 1952, she met a man named William Bill Lennon, who had recently left the Navy. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) The couple married on November 17th, 1952 in Vancouver, Washington. So again, met and married within the year. (laughs) Surprisingly, not at all surprisingly, Bill was not the best influence on Lee as neither one of them was particularly passionate about holding a job. (laughs) The (laughs) The only time Lee worked was in 1952 when she worked as a waitress at the Treasure Island restaurant in Portland. That's fun. Yeah, kind of fun little themed restaurant. Uh (laughs) So, Anthony, how do you make money without working? 
Oh, do you think? boy. Uh, you know, if your parents are around. Uh, you can. You bomb Guilty. as much as you can. Guilty. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or forge checks. You write bad checks. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and so both Lee and Bill were arrested in Phoenix, Arizona on January 26, 1953, after writing a quote-unquote few bogus, end quote, oh, no. checks in Maricopa County. The Arizona Republic newspaper from Phoenix reported that a few meant 10, Ten checks, each for $32. And the two were arrested after cashing one of the checks at the local Safeway store. They pleaded guilty to the charge and were sentenced from 18 months to three years at the Arizona State Penitentiary on March 8, 1953. Lee was paroled a year later on March 10, 1954, and she was paroled out of state. Uh, So that may have been part of her parole is that, like, you leave and do not come Mm -hmm. back. But the couple had not quite learned their lesson yet, and businesses in Boise would unfortunately be their next victims on November 11th, 1954. So, again, this takes place in Boise. We've talked about the history of Boise, like, ad nauseum, from its earliest days through modern day. We're always talking about Boise. So, I'll revert to one of my favorite things uh, in sort of placing us in the time period, which is looking at the front page of the local newspaper the day the crime was committed. So, November 11th, 1954 was a Thursday. Our, our current newspaper, the Idaho Statesman, was still went by the longer name of the Idaho Daily Statesman. The U.S. was actually between major wars in 1954, with the armistice of the Korean War signed on July 28th, 1953, but of course, the Cold War was raging. Mm-hmm. The largest headline on the front page says, quote, President says Russia is more conciliatory on airplane incident, end quote. So a few days before this article was written and published, a U.S. bomber plane was flying over the Habamai Islands off the coast of Japan when it was shot down by Soviet pilots killing one American wow. in the process. President Dwight D. Eisenhower took, quote, a calm and non-belligerent stand, end quote, against Soviet action, saying the U.S. bomber plane had a right to be there, as neither the U.S. nor Japan, quote, have recognized the Reds' claim to the Habamais, end quote. Indeed, the 1855 Treaty of Shimoda, signed between Russia and Japan, gave Japan ownership of the Habamai Islands, along with some other inlets in the region. However, Soviet troops had occupied the Habamais during World War II and eventually annexed the islands, deporting all its residents to Japan. So there's the big controversy. Does Japan own these islands? Do the Soviets have right to these islands? In his report, Eisenhower admitted that the Russians had, quote, a considerably different attitude than there had been in the past, end quote, but nothing really seemed to come of this event. It was kind of just one of those things that was like, it's unfortunate that it happened. They don't have any rights to that, but we're not going to get heavily involved if they don't get heavily involved, which I can't say I blame them. In the center of the page is a large picture of President Eisenhower, Vice President Richard Nixon, and General Lemuel C. Shepard, Commandant of the Marine Corps in front of the newly dedicated Iwo Jima Memorial in Washington, D.C., with a small article noting the ceremony, quote, paying respect to the memory of all Leathernecks who've paid the last full measure of devotion to their country from the Revolutionary War to Korea, end quote. General Shepard said, quote, may it stand for ages yet to come as a symbol of American courage and determination of indestructible faith and unity of purpose, end quote. And, you know, I think we all know the Iwo Jima statue. It's the one of all the soldiers lifting that flag up yeah. that's in Washington, D.C. It is a very cool. That's awesome. Um, very so th- cool. That's when it was. Yep. 19, 1954 is when wow. it was dedicated. I, I still can't believe, like, how connected yeah. 1954 to today is yeah. with Russia and mm-hmm causing issue and you know missiles going over the border recently oh, it's man. like oh my gosh history doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes it rhymes it indeed. rhymes oh boy 
Other articles included a report that the 1954 harvest was, quote, within 3% of last year's large value, end quote, and that President Eisenhower okayed signing a pact with Southeast Asian countries to, quote, answer communist victories in Indochina, end quote, and also that President Eisenhower suggested that the Senate House Atomic Energy Committee allow for the execution of the Dixon-Gates private power contract, which is a lot of names, uh, but basically that contract would authorize a $107 million generating power plant in West Memphis, Arkansas to, quote, pour private power into the lines of the Tennessee Valley Authority, end quote. Huh. And so for those of you who don't know, the Tennessee Valley Authority was a New Deal organization designed to provide power to rural areas of the Tennessee Valley. Uh, and that also includes areas of Alabama, Georgia, and Mississippi. So all that to say, there's several different articles. One is about the harvest looks really good, which is great that we're signing a pact with Southeast Asian countries to make sure the communists don't take over. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Korean War just ended. And then, of course, just this money into the TVA just to get power to people who didn't have power before, which is also kind of odd. Like, it's an yeah. odd thing to think about that even in the 50s, there are people who are living these, this bucolic rural right. lifestyle, you know? God. Interestingly, there's only one point of local Idaho news on this front page. It's a six and a half line snippet at the very bottom of the corner that reads, quote, the prosecution completed its case Wednesday in the trial of Red and Hopla, who was accused of first degree murder in the shooting of ex-wife Mrs. Carla Hopla, end quote. Mm. Every other article was of national significance. So either it was a huge news week nationally or just a really slow week in the state or both. You know what? I think I've done a research request for, Have you? for the Hopla family. Uh -huh. So that's... That's, that's so, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. I love those connections. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so anyway, back to Lee. So one of the things that eventually makes the news is the fact that on that day, November 11th, 1954, Lee made out five fake checks each for $30. Three were made payable to Helen A. Eastman, which she signed Mrs. Paul Eastman. Two others were made to Helen A. Stewart, signed with the name Mrs. Robert A. Stewart. And Helen, or like her mother's name was Helena. Mm. Um, both of those names are Helen A., like they use, she uses A as a middle initial. Oh, okay. She cast, cashed four checks at different grocery stores in Boise, but was arrested while trying to cash the fifth check at yet another grocery store. So she passed checks at the 28th Street Market, the M&W Market, <gasps> right near the prison. Wow. It's, it's that, so for those of you who've driven to the prison, that Chevron gas station that's on your right, as you're yeah. if you're driving yeah. east on Warm Springs, it's on the right. That's the M&W Market. So she cashed a forged check there. She also forged cash forged checks at the corner grocer and avenue market and each time she used a check at the store she would pay for whatever the groceries cost and then get the rest in oh cash my gosh. reports don't make clear which stores she visited in which order but authorities made it clear she was being charged for the check she cashed at the corner grocery made out to helen a eastman Bill was not with her when she was arrested and claimed that it wasn't his idea to pass the checks. The sentencing judge claimed that she was traveling with a man who was not her husband, that Bill was still in the Arizona state pen, and I couldn't find records that state when Bill was released from Arizona, so it is possible oh, okay. that maybe he wasn't, and she was claiming that this man was her husband. Mm -hmm. She does say that Bill was with her when she committed the crimes, having been released at the same time she was, but since her arrest, he had since left. She thought he may be in Great Falls, Montana with his father, but he kind of disappeared. Right. Bill kind of disappears from the story at this point. Of her motivation, quote, Lee says she was influenced by economic circumstances in committing the present offense, that she and her husband were without employment at the time, were broke again, had just come from Portland, Oregon, and they needed another tire and chains to continue on their way, that she wrote and passed the checks to get him money so they could go on their way, end quote. 
and she had not actually completed her parole from Arizona when she was arrested in oh, Idaho. Huh. Two days after her arrest, she waived preliminary hearing, and two weeks later, she pleaded guilty to forgery. And two weeks after that, Judge C.E. Winstead sentenced her to not more than 14 years in prison. She entered the Idaho State Penitentiary on November 27, 1954. So her intake form, race, white, sex, female, age 25, uh, height 69 and one half inches. So she's 5'9", she's pretty tall. Yeah. Uh, weight 172, eyes hazel, hair brown, complexion medium. No military record, occupation waitress, marital status married with one child. So she does claim that child even though oh, uh, wow. she gave it away for adoption. Mm -hmm. And then school says quit in eighth grade. Her Bertillion, she's got scars up and down her left arm, including a vaccination scar. And this is actually something I wanted to bring up. My good friend, she's a regular listener to the podcast, and she said, do you know why they have vaccination scars? Because needles are so small these days. And we should mention that this is prior to, I don't want to say a liquid vaccination. I don't think that's right. But uh, vaccinations were more what's called inoculations at the time. And basically what they did in similar, like if you've ever done like an allergy test at the doctor where they just kind of prick your skin over and over with the thing, with the irritant to see if your skin reacts, they would do the same thing with that disease, whatever disease you were being vaccinated for. And they would basically just sort of scratch your skin over and over. And that's why they have scars and we don't. Yeah. So that's why when we say that they have vaccination scar, that is is what that means. It's like a vaccination tattoo. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> it's uh, way less cool, though. Yeah. <laughs> um, she did, speaking of tattoos, have one on her right thigh. Really? The letters BL, probably for Bill Lennon. Ouch. Right, right <laughs> oh, listen, I, I have a thigh tattoo, and it was far more painful than I expected. Oh, yeah. Um, so she only had six incisors left on her lower jaw and her entire upper plate was completely false. So she had very few teeth left in her, her face. Wow. The ring finger on her left hand had been amputated at her middle knuckle. She what? claimed that as a baby, she fell on a glass jar and cut the finger and as scar tissue developed, it didn't heal right and infection required amputation in 1947. Oh. And uh, the Bertillion states, quote, the condition still bothers her mostly with a dull pain, sometimes with a sharp pain, not a handicap to working, but a discomfort when she has to put up with it, mm. end quote. When she entered, she was one of 17 women oh, in the gosh. women's ward. This has to be one of the fullest times yeah. in women's ward history. And sure. she served, understandably, with a lot of former subjects of the podcast. All Wilda Reams, Verna Keller, Josephine Fort, Lena Pink Proud, Barbara Ann Singleton, Doris Ainsworth. Through her time, she ultimately served with 40 more women, including Virginia Pugmire, Ernestine Paul, and Edna May Hester. Wow. Bonkers. That is... So she was in for quite a long time. And again, this is just a huge amount of women in the women's ward and super high turnover, just oh, yeah. constantly yeah. cycling in and out. She was really well behaved while in prison. Per reports, she attended all of the religious services offered. The chaplain's notes seem to indicate that the religious services were offered particularly in the Alcoholics Anonymous capacity, but that Lee attended these services even though, quote, liquor is not a factor, end quote. Okay. She worked, quote, washing dishes, cook's helper, general maintenance work and cleaning, etc. in the women's ward, end quote. So she generally was very helpful, was there to serve her time. Yeah. In December 1954, the warden received a letter from Mrs. Cora Hull, Lee's maternal grandmother. And Mrs. Hull wrote that Lee's father, Alden, was, quote unquote, critically ill, having been 
been on constant oxygen for about two weeks, but she was mostly writing to ask that she be kept apprised of anything that she might be able to do to help Lee, as Lee and her grandmother were fairly close. Mm -hmm. On September 30th, 1955, Lee received a telegram, quote, Sorry to inform you, your father passed away 3.15 p.m. today. Please notify or call us if you can come, end quote. And Lee, of course, could not come. Yeah. But because of her good behavior and probably because of the overcrowding conditions in the women's ward, she was released on parole on May 15, 1956. She was paroled to her grandmother's home in Portland, Oregon. Her grandmother owned the home and offered Lee a place to stay until she got a job and got back on her feet. Before parole, according to the report, she stated she was separated from her husband, Bill, who was working in Butte, Montana at the time, saying, quote, that she doesn't think she will go back to him, but she might later on if he can prove himself in regard to not drinking too much and maintaining steady work, end quote. According to authorities, quote, prognosis is considered very uncertain and guarded depending on several factors following her release, adequate placement, careful supervision, keeping her away from undesirable, though her husband would constitute one of these. And on the positive side, attempting to surround her with positive, desirable influences. It is thought that she could probably be just as easily influenced toward desirable social activity and adjustment as towards the undesirable as she probably has been in the past. Outlook is considered hopeful, end quote. She had to follow the typical career rules on her parole, including that she had to write her probation officer once monthly, could not leave the state of Oregon without permission to avoid ex-convicts and other quote-unquote evil associates, Mm -hmm. uh, and had to make a concerted effort to find a job. (laughs) Within about six months, that parole had been violated in multiple ways. Oh, no. (laughs) It's not completely clear what her parole situation was. I think there was some understanding that after a time of parole in Oregon, she would move to Butte to be with Bill. Bill was to write her parole officer with details of this proposed resettlement, but that letter never came. At some point early in her parole, she left Oregon not once but twice without permission, traveling first to Coeur d'Alene and then to Castle Rock, Washington, uh, for reasons unknown. Then her parole officer learned that for a third time she left Oregon without permission, this time living with a new boyfriend, Dean Long, in Chicago, Illinois. She went all the way to Illinois on probation. Girl, what are you doing? According to Dean, who called the parole officer long distance, the couple were living as husband and wife under the name Mr. and Mrs. Carl Adams at the Victoria Hotel on Clark Street, and she was working at the Conrad Hilton Hotel in Chicago as an elevator operator under the name Joyce Adams. Wait, they were married? No, they were pretending to be married. Okay. Yeah. All right. I was like bigamy too like oh my god i mean at least i guess at least she avoided avoided that charge (laughs) but the scandal that comes from a couple who are not married and pretending to be married yeah quote long said he'd become tired of this raw deal she was giving him and writer interpreted this to mean that lennon was again consorting with other males long added subject had not been home for one or two days but beyond that would give little further information regarding her conduct end quote Mm. Um, which is interesting because there hasn't been anything that comes up that says she's like a cheater or that yeah. she's involved with other men while she's married. But maybe she was like in Chicago and breaking her parole in so many ways that she was like, I want to have a good time. Who knows? <laughs> the parole officer continued that Lee had continually, quote, frequented the less desirable bars and hangouts along Southwest 2nd and 3rd Avenues in downtown Portland, in addition to consorting with persons of poor reputation, end mm. quote. The officer also stated that, quote, subject only half-heartedly sought employment and did so when necessity became too great. She finally disregarded the instruction altogether after which she absconded, end quote. So in summary, her Oregon parole officer recommended that her parole be revoked for the following reasons. One, absconded from supervision. Two, removed her residence outside the state of Oregon without permission. Three, failed to make a monthly report as required. 
Four, associated with disreputable individuals. Five, failed to seek employment and maintain same. And six, failed to abide by the instructions of the parole officer. In recommendation of the re revocation of her parole, her parole officer stated, quote, This woman has been assisted greatly by various people, including employers and representatives of Oregon State Departments. She has accepted and used them to their fullest advantage, then cast all aside and utilized other means to maintain herself. It is apparent Lennon is concerned only with living off society rather than contributing towards it, end quote. There actually is a potential that Lee actually left Oregon without permission for a fourth time, <sighs> as I did, in fact, find a marriage record filed in San Diego, California on July 20th, 1957, of Lee Erickson Lennon to Edward J. Haugen. And authorities quite seem quite unaware of this marriage oh, on the revocation of, of her parole. So she returned to the Idaho State Penitentiary as a parole violator on January 9th, 1957. There is a possibility that she married Dean Long, as her social security records list her name as Elda Lee Long in 1959, but she was still in prison in 1959, and I couldn't find any records to substantiate this marriage. Um, there are no documents in her file detailing her behavior after she re-entered prison as a parole violator, so her behavior must have been improved. With that being said, though, she remained in prison for another four years, so it's very possible that she wow. had quite a few problems but it also is possible that her parole violations were just so egregious yeah. that authorities felt like more years would be beneficial to her 18 um, months to 14 years mm -hmm. we're gonna we're, we're gonna, gonna keep you in there the like you want to you want to break every rule oh, we set out for you geez. sorry you yeah. got to deal with it yeah um so she was again released on parole on october 2nd 1961 wow from the date of her incarceration to the date of her second release, including the seven months she was on her first parole, Lee served six years, nine months, and five days of a 14-year wow, sentence. That's one of the longest ones. For women, Jeez, yeah, yeah, it is. And again, all because for seven months, she just like couldn't obey the rules. Guys, if all you have to do is follow some rules for a year, just follow them for a year. Just, then you can do whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, if your desire is to commit more crimes, maybe don't do that. But mm. at least wait until yeah. you're off parole. Just do it, your just, time. Just do your time. <laughs> do your number. So piecing together what happened after she left prison was a little bit difficult. She did obey all of her rules and was granted a final discharge from the penitentiary on March 28th, 1962. At some point, she moved to Minnesota. Uh, despite the fact that she had used Dean Long's last name or perhaps believed herself to be married to Dean Long, but again, couldn't find any records to verify that, she was nevertheless still married to Edward Haugen. She did receive a divorce from him in Minnesota on September 10th, 1974. Um, I'm not sure if they ever lived together during part mm -hmm. of their marriage um, because, again, it was in California, and then I'm assuming that she just disappeared for <laughs> another, what, four years yeah. so i don't know maybe she forgot um <laughs> that she was married and she was like oh crap sometimes i do that yeah <laughs> no that doesn't happen <laughs> well to be fair you're living with becky you've been with becky since That's you were true. in high school so yeah, if yeah. you just absconded to california while you were on parole and were like yeah i'll marry this guy and then four years later you're like oh crap what? i forgot i married that guy <laughs> again this was a time when like marriage was just like oh my gosh we met you're in the navy uh, i love you let's get married so yes yeah. <laughs> um at least that's what the movies say it was like 
Then in May 1975, so about eight months later, she married Clarence A. Willman in Hennepin County, Minnesota. And sadly, Clarence died four years later in December 1979. And as far as I could tell, they were still married at that point. Then in May 1980, she married William Clarence Hines in Hennepin County, uh, Minnesota as well. Uh, the last thing I could find of her was her death in May 1982, which is listed on her U.S. Social Security Applications and Claim Index, but it does not list the place of her death or her burial. So she was 53 at this time, I think. So she was pretty young. Wow. And so that is, unfortunately, all I have for her. But elderly Lennon, 9050, she kind of lived it up for a hot minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, serious. So uh, that is that is my story for today. Oh, man. I know. Well, I feel like James and Elda had a similar, just like mm-hmm. kind of in trouble mm-hmm. at the reformatory, mm-hmm. young and right. probably undiagnosed issues. That yep. They just can't help themselves, and it's unfortunate. Yeah, I mean, and the nice thing is, though, she doesn't, after her egregious parole violation, it seems like she had four years to think about it. And from that point on, was like, I'm just going to kind of stick to myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I did my time probably longer than than she expected. And and so really uh, seemed to kind of turn her life around as much as she could. And, you know, we always have to be. Always have to be grateful for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, definitely kind of one of those things that she got caught in the cycle early. Um, and it's it's really hard to get out of that cycle, mm-hmm. as we saw, you know, I think with both uh, James and Roy as well. So yeah. yeah, just be careful out there. Serious. Just, yeah, don't get into it in the yeah, first place. Seriously. If you can, if you can help it. Yeah. yeah. And if you see somebody heading that way, help them out. Yeah. Try to get them out of that. But yeah. it's all up to the individual. That's and, true. Sometimes you mature and grow up. And, and sometimes it takes staying in prison for four uh, years after you violate your parole yeah. that that you finally get get it, you know, stuck in your brain. So oh, and you serve with forty different women. Yeah. Or even more than that, like Imagine. fifty, almost sixty women. Seventeen. Seventeen in, when she came in. in. That little oh, And then she served little. with forty more people. <sighs> that's so that's like that's gotta be like a third of the women's ward population yeah, overall. Um, and she was in, I mean, almost seven years is all, um, which I think kind of is an indication of the high turnover that mm-hmm. that the men's prison did not have, I think, yeah. in the same way that the women's ward did. Absolutely. Um, and so much of that, I think, is the idea of, of gender at this mm-hmm. time, that, like, women aren't criminals. Like, they can't be criminals. They can't be that bad. Right. And I don't think she was bad. I just think she got caught and didn't know... You know, it said she just didn't really like to work, which same. But I, instead, I went to a PhD program. So just just little life decisions. <laughs> oh, Sky. Hey, great work. I really Thank like you. that. Thank you. You too. Elda Lennon. Yep. She is an interesting one. And she's wow. she's one that, like, you forget about. Like, yeah. we, we get so stuck on the big women, which, of course, fascinating women. Mm-hmm. As we, We've done this for eight seasons. I think every woman we've covered has been really interesting. But, yeah, but every once in a while, especially with forgers, you're just like, yep, she wrote a bad check, right. and that's all we got. But, <laughs> you know, she had a, kind of an interesting life. So, yeah. yeah. Well, nice. All right. Well, one more episode. Yeah. Ringing in the new year with some crime. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll be talking about an execution next week. Uh, so, yeah. Skip yep. it if you don't and, want and it. And I've but... got uh, a murder as well. Yeah. So it's going to be a, a murder-heavy, death-heavy 
oh. crime-heavy episode. Yes. So just be aware of that. Yeah, uh, definitely tune in to the Stool Pigeon Saturday this mm-hmm. weekend, though. It's uh, going to kind of lead into to my story, mm. and um, mm-hmm. it'll be another graffiti It's episode. Suzanne, right? It's Suzanne yeah, Squires. Yeah, Suzanne. My, my office mate. <laughs> so. All right, well, great work, Sky. Yeah, thanks. Woo. All right, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you had a great holiday season, yeah. and we'll talk to you next week. Do your own time. Do your own number, and also in the new year. Ooh. Ooh. behind gray walls please rate review and subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode not only do we get to hear your feedback about the show but it helps others find us as well if you're interested in finding out more about the podcast and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode follow our facebook group at behind gray walls podcast and we have a podcast instagram as well you can find us on instagram at behind gray walls pod 